Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent base. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know your lines, then you can forget them. Well, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome back to another episode of Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. I am the ready-to-rock-and-roll Ryan Seabold, and with me today, I have some breaking news. He was freshly cast as the brand-new 007, Mr. Jason Peters! What is up, Ryan? How are you? On this fine day. <laughs> How's it going, buddy? 007 James Bond, Jason Peters. That's right. Congratulations, man. Thank you. Thank you. So one thing you'll notice is that um, my delivery is a little bit different, right? And so one of the things that we realized is that um, with the 007 character, we had taken him so far in terms of being violent and aggressive. Um, the... Uh, the English gentleman who uh, came before me, Mr. Daniel Craig, uh, really portrayed him as a, a brutal and tough guy. So talking with the studio, we realized that the only real place left to go is to make James Bond a soft, caring individual, you know? Um, this is this is a brand new 007, one that's, you know, not afraid to get in touch with his feelings. Um, he goes to weekly psychotherapy sessions, and um, he actually, uh, you know, you can you can call him James. He's cool with you calling him James. So, yes, I will be bringing a, a slightly <laughs> new flavor to the 007 franchise. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, you're like Pepsi. It's the choice of the next generation. This is uh, different, definitely a choice and a different different way to go with the character. Thank you. I support it. You know, mental health is very important and we need Absolutely. to support all these things. And uh, I think you're going to you know, be giving a good example for the kids and all of that. Um, why don't you tell me a little bit about uh, maybe some of the, the, I mean, can you talk about any of the plots uh, that you guys have discussed or maybe some of the villains that you're going to bring into the mix? Yeah, definitely. So um, one of the things that we realized is that um, a lot of the adventures that James Bond has gone on over the years uh, have largely actually been figments of his imagination. Um, so, you know, we've kind of all known that it's it's physically impossible okay, okay. to jump off of a ski lift, uh, you know, down 30, 40 feet and, you know, land on their skis. Um, yeah, it turns out the entire time this was actually James suffering a psychotic episode. So um, one of the main. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so uh, what you'll start to see is that one of the uh, biggest villains that we've identified uh, is actually James Bond's mother. Uh, we realized that many of his. Uh, sort of, uh, you know, hypersexual advances that are just, you know, now we realize are quite inappropriate. Uh, that really just came from a lack of affection that his mother showed him growing up, and he's really been pining for that all of his life. So, uh, you know, you're going to see a lot of sort of like repressive memories and uh, James going into his mind palace to confront his mother about a lot of the uh, lack of nurture that he failed to receive growing up. That's fair. That's fair. Well, welcome back to the show. We appreciate you. Don't forget Thank the little so guy when your uh, James Vaughn take uh, takes off uh, all over the world, and, and you become a, a, a multi 
cultural superstar. Absolutely. And I, and I believe by little guy you're referring to odd job, correct? <laughs> yes, I, I am. I've done my homework. Speaking of odd jobs, here we are as podcast hosts once more on season three here to talk about a movie. Jason, this week's movie uh, also deals with some uh, trauma and PTSD, uh, both in the film and taking me back to 1999 to a 19-year-old Ryan Seabold. Uh, this one, uh, you know, I call these my Maxim Magazine years or the Maxim Magazine years of uh, America. Just, oh boy, there's some troubling things, but there's uh, there's a lot to love about this movie Right, too. right, Ryan, uh, we, we, was... we do need to know one thing because this was very common at the time. Frosted tips, yes? Did you, did you rock them? Did you say frosted tits? I, I asked you if you rocked frosted tips. I, for a short while, did dye my hair blonde, yes. Very nice, very nice. Were you inspired by Mr. Sugar Ray himself? <laughs> no, I Who, was Who, of course, not. is not Sugar Ray, but Mark McGrath. Yes, correct. I, <laughs> I was not uh, into the poppier stuff, but I was into a lot of surf punk uh, at the time. I did a lot of surfing back then. And, and, uh, Speed Home California, my friend. I was more of a Warped friend. Tour kid. Speed Home California. More of a Warped Tour kid. Very nice. Should I... Should I do the uh, description in this voice, by the way, or should I use my normal voice? Yeah, I mean, are you gonna do the uh, <laughs> are you gonna do the episode as a method actor for for your new role, or or are you gonna? I mean, I have been trying to come stay back. in character. It, it is it is kind of hard to find my center. Um, it's taken a lot of work with my acting coach, but I think that we can we can go ahead and do this this film description and uh, maybe hang it up because uh, quite frankly, I don't want to hear any more of this myself. So here we go. Jim McAllister, a well-liked high school government teacher, can't help but notice that successful student Tracy Flick uses less-than-ethical tactics to get what she wants. When Tracy runs for school president, Jim feels that she will be a poor influence on the student body and convinces Paul, a dim-witted but popular student-athlete, to run against Tracy. When she becomes aware of Jim's secret involvement in the race, a bitter feud is sparked, and we all end up learning a little bit about ourselves. That's right, I threw in that last part, ladies and gentlemen. Ryan, I will, nice. I will ask nice you in a very measured way, what did you think about this movie? Jason, I would love to tell you way more about this movie right after this trailer for Election. If you're one of the millions of Americans who still believes that honesty, integrity, and fidelity are the cornerstones of our democracy, we suggest you wait for another preview before getting your popcorn. In the nation's capital, a new leader has found a place in the halls of power. But her story began in the halls of high school. We'll move on now to the presidential race with three candidates running. The first is Tracy Flick. One thing that's important to know about me is that I'm an only child. My mom is really devoted to me. She likes to write letters to successful women like Elizabeth Dole and Connie Chung and ask them what advice do they have for me, Tracy, her daughter. All right, Ryan, that's enough. That's enough of that. We're going to drop that uh, soothing therapist voice and uh, go right back into my uh, high-pitched nasally drone because apparently that's a lot better. So this is what you get, guys. Bring in the nasally heat. (laughs) Nasally heat. Nasal heat is actually, that was my uh, porn name back in the day. Uh, Shout out to Chatsworth. Big fan of your work, buddy. Thank you. Big fan of your work. Thank you. Emphasis on the big. Hey, oh. 
what a dumb show. My favorite was uh, no- Nose Bone and Six. <laughs> nose Bone and Six was phenomenal. No, 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 no. That was a that was the Nose Bone Six. We were like a, a kung fu group that also banged called the Nose Bone Six. Oh shit! Yeah. Nice. That was a. That was a. That was I actually got the Shaw. I got nothing for that. <laughs> that was the Shaw brothers' <laughs> late, late stage in their career. Yeah. Yeah. Up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it looks like it's that sound that we have come to know and love. It's time for another listener mailbox, Ryan. Hell yeah. <laughs> Uh, let's go ahead. This one comes to us this week from uh, Candace of the Bloody Bits Horror Show, who they oh, seem awesome. to enjoy calling in and uh, giving us their piece on some stuff here. Let's go ahead and listen. Hey, this is Candace from the Bloody Bits Horror Show podcast, and I'm calling in with my hot take and shit opinion. We need less elevated horror in cinema today, and we need more of the good old blood, beasts, and boobs. So I don't want my villain to be a metaphor for mental illness or grief. I want them to just kill people in the most fantastic fashions possible. Can we please bring that back? Thank you. Okay, interesting take. Uh, I mean, we do a lot of A24 here. I'm sure that our audience uh, digs the A24 stuff. But I got to tell you, Ryan, I mean, I think that I think that she has some legitimate criticisms. You know, I do think – and look, I would argue that there's space for both. And I think the problem is that – Largely, the old school, you know, physical killers have been replaced with these sort of, you know, metaphorical, ethereal sort of A24 monsters, as she said, that really aren't monsters, but metaphors. So I think it's just that it's not necessarily one is good and the other is bad. It's just that there's an imbalance and now everything has shifted to where that's like all you get. But yeah, when was the last time we had like a Michael Myers or a Freddy Krueger that was like introduced into the horror lexicon? No, I absolutely agree. First thing, I'm never going to turn down blood and boobs. So you want some blood and boobs, Candace? Bring it. Uh, number two, um, I absolutely agree. There should be room in the marketplace for both. Uh, maybe there just needs to be more drugs in cinema. Maybe our filmmakers need to get high and just be like, hey, man, how about they just like fucking stab them, man? And you know, that's <laughs> the end of that conversation. Like That's as dumb as it needs to be. Um, I also think... Let me ask you this, Jason. I kind of feel like the the slasher horror films and the Roger Corman movies and and you know the days of yore that she's speaking of, the mindless stabbings, uh, you know, that was a time where you had limited budget and you had to just go make a feature. It was your calling card. Go out and make something on this low budget. And horror has really harbored low budget cinema uh, very well, especially through the seventies and eighties, right? So yeah. Um, you know, now that digital has come along and people can go make this profound statement and, you know, you have these art students that are allowed to uh, kind of think outside the box, more or less. You're not so much limited by budget as much anymore. You can, uh, you know, the gimbals exist. You don't need a steady cam sure. crew. You know, you don't need to be strapping a 16 millimeter film camera on a plank of wood like Sam Raimi and Evil Dead, you know, and running it through the woods. Um, you know, I think maybe... Uh, that is kind of stolen from maybe a bit from the mindless expose or the exploitation film of your, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think there's any truth in that? Yeah, definitely. You know, and I think that it's also because the market for horror has changed. It used to be a very niche genre okay. 
and it wasn't nearly as popular as it is. Cut to today, I mean, horror has launched so many careers, right, in many different aspects because there is an element of, look, we'll accept the low-budget nature of things as long as you give us those sensational elements that we're looking for, right? The blood and the tits and the gore and all that stuff that we're mentioning. So, yeah, I mean, we haven't had that for some time. And I think we do kind of, there is room for us to go back to some of those exploitation sensibilities and bring some of that back in a certain fashion. And again, just to balance out some of the more serious-minded horror that we are seeing these days. So for anybody listening, if you agree or disagree, you know, let us know. You can write into esotericacinema at gmail.com or hit us up on the listener mailbox like Candice, 818-483-6285. We will put your opinion live on air and we look forward to hearing from you. All right. Well, yeah, so we are looking at Election and what a movie have we got for you guys this week. Uh, before we get into it, Ryan, high level real quick. What did you think about this movie? Um, it was good. Okay. It was not as good as I remember. I will always have a sweet place in my heart for Matthew Broderick. I love that guy with all my soul. Um, and he just seems like a really nice, he might be a total asshole, but he always just seemed like a really nice guy in person too. Yeah. Uh, this is also directed by Alexander Payne, who, uh, most people are familiar with from sideways. Uh, that was kind of his Big claim to fame. I always get this guy wrapped up and mixed up with David O. Russell films as well. I get sure. those two guys. Similar aesthetics. Uh, similar, yeah. Um, and uh, this was also in uh, 1999, as I previously stated, which you have always claimed as the greatest year of movie cinema history. It's up there if it's not. So um, I... Like I said, remember really loving this movie uh, as a youngster. And um, so being from an auteur like Alexander Payne or an indie film kind of uh, uh, director like he was or is, um, I thought that uh, this movie deserved to be on the list. I don't know. Do you Now that we've watched it, do you think this movie deserved to be on our list? Or, or is there enough meat on the bone here for, for a show like this? There absolutely is. And so funny thing, uh, one thing that I told you on the last episode after we pulled the film is that I didn't really like this film when I was younger, when it first came out. I had seen it once or twice. It was what it was. I kind of moved on. I didn't inhabit it the way that I did some of those other Paul Thomas Anderson films, David Fincher films, to a lesser extent, some Wes Anderson right. films. This was, you know, chief that time, right? Now... After I watched this film, I came away loving it. Like, I enjoyed this film so much more than I ever did 20 years ago or whenever I first saw it. And I was shocked because okay. I wasn't really looking that forward to it. Now, perhaps we've talked about this before. It tends to be the case that the more diminished the expectations, the higher you come away with the film because obviously you're not expecting much. But this film kind of blew me away. And one of the things that I was surprised is because I used to think that the film was kind of shallow. That was one of the issues that I had with the film. And now watching it this time around and also full disclosure, like I was able to get my hands on the Criterion collection and listen to the commentary oh, wow. track and watch a bunch of features and things of that nature. So I did get Hell some yeah. ear to the ground info from the man Alexander Payne himself and you realize, like, there's a lot 
there is a lot of meat on this bone. And I think that over the course of this episode, we're going to see maybe what some of those things are. And maybe it'll put it in a slightly different light. Maybe it won't. But either way, we'll go ahead and take a look at that. Dope, man, because I was really expecting you to say meh, and I was uh, I was kind of well. toning my enthusiasm down to match yours, and I was like, you know, because I was waiting for you to dive in and uh, give me this, you know, it was okay, it was okay, <laughs> but so it's I was trying to like scale my my uh, my my enjoyment of this film back. I will say I. I I'm not going to take back the fact that I do think I liked this uh, film or loved this film more when I was younger than I did on this viewing, sure. but I really do enjoy this movie. It was uh, a character film, and, I, you know, as I got into this film, it started to make me kind of wonder, like, I feel like everything has to have some zhuzh about it or pizzazz or a twist or some kind of, like, angle it's taking. Uh, very rarely do we get... Films like I'm not saying they don't exist, but it just seems like they're kind of scant. Yeah, um, we talked about this a little bit on the last detail as well when we uh, took a look at that last season, where it's just like character-driven movies like that. Um, you know, don't really exist anymore. Everything's got to be you know ramped up. Yeah, uh, a little bit better. So uh, I, this was refreshing. Um, from the moment we uh, I hit play on uh, Amazon Prime. Uh, I was taken aback and in, into a time machine uh, to a moment in time when MTV productions existed. Yep, that astronaut man. Remember that astronaut yep. well. And and honestly, <laughs> I totally forgot this was an MTV productions film. Yeah, same. Uh, up there with uh, such hollowed efforts as Joe's apartment. <laughs> god damn it i'm adding that movie to our next, list, next season. <laughs> but it's funny that you bring up the last detail ryan because that's actually one of the films that alexander payne really respects and in his mind he's basically just trying to recreate those 60s and 70s character driven comedies like he's very open like he uses the last detail as an example of the type of film that he wants to make just in his oh, way cool. relative to his hometown of Nebraska, which he also loves to um, shoot in Nebraska, use Nebraska locals, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, he uh, is. He's got a whole ass movie that. called Nebraska. <laughs> right. So and we can actually go into a lot of the specifics behind this. I just need you to give me a good place for us to start, Ryan. At the beginning. At the beginning, indeed. We open on a shot of a sprinkler. It's got this repetitive droning, and we quickly see a man running around a track. Soon learn this is our protagonist, Jim McAllister. No relation to Kevin McAllister. After he does a couple shaky push-ups, we do see him in the shower before we're introduced to Tracy. Now, when we're introduced to Tracy, it's by way of a number of close-ups and sharp cuts, not really dissimilar to the way that they show Batman kind of putting on the different aspects of his suit. And we don't see her face for a minute, but she's quickly revealed to be Tracy Flick, who is our antagonist as well as main supporting player. Now, after a quick but important shot of the janitor, while Jim is throwing away food but misses, is going to come into play at the very end, Tracy explains sort of the film's central thesis, which is this freeze frame that occurs. And in voiceover, Tracy explains that, quote, none of this would have happened if Mr. McAllister hadn't meddled the way that he did. 
Now, <laughs> there's a couple of things, Ryan, that I'm going to point out here about it before we sort of like get into the story proper. And that is that there are a number of themes that Alexander Payne wanted to introduce to this film. Now, even he will openly admit that not all of them are maybe as fleshed out as he would have liked. But there's a lot of different attempts and a lot of different thoughts towards representing the characters through different visual metaphors and such. One of the things that he does is early on, he wanted to connect the shape of circles to Jim and have Tracy be sort of represented by these very hard and distinct lines. And so the idea is that Jim is just kind of like running around in a circle chasing his tail. He can't get ahead in life, etc., right? And so that's why he's introduced to him running around a track. And then over the course of the entire movie, if you actually look closely, all of the ties that he's wearing have different circles on them. And then, you know, if you think about like the example of the fruit that he gives to Paul, he uses like the circles. So there's a sort of visual motif of circles that Alexander Payne wanted to attach to that character. Um, as opposed to Tracy's more hard edge. So like the way Tracy's introduced where she like flips open the table legs. Okay. Also a really funny aspect of that. So it shows these close-ups and again, she's flipping these legs open. If you actually look, there are five distinct cuts of her pulling the legs out, even though there's only four legs. And it's supposed to be indicative <laughs> of the fact that Tracy overdoes absolutely everything. <laughs> <laughs> she found a fifth leg yeah and did that too exactly that's yeah. fantastic <laughs> so you've got that and then one of the other themes that he had is just um to show kind of the you know reflecting the lesser nature of a lot of the characters matthew broderick etc is just uh this motif of trash you see trash and trash related things around a lot so the opening shot where jim's throwing away the trash and it hits the ground and the janitor sees um, you'll notice that, like, you know, where Tracy pushes up a trash can to stand on top of it to fix her banners. We see a lot of garbage trucks around outside. Um, the the votes obviously got thrown away. So there's these, like, sort of visual motifs that he's trying to attach to different aspects of the character just to kind of flush out the sure. world and give it, um, you know, some some more artistic merit, which I'm always going to appreciate, you know? Even down to the fact that that opening freeze frame so when it freezes on math on Matthew Broderick's character and Tracy says none of this would have happened if Mr. McAllister had meddled the way he did, he's in the middle of throwing away trash on the freeze frame. <laughs> so it's so she's talking about if he hadn't meddled and he's throwing something away, which is an obvious reference to the end where he throws away the votes. So a bit of foreshadowing right. there from Alexander Payne that's actually very easy to miss until it's pointed out. And then you're like, oh, well, of course, you know. So one of the things that uh, I, I will ask you about that I kind of thought that was really interesting. So when the film starts off, we very quickly get voiceover narration from Jim. And he's talking about how he's this like teacher that really cares and he gives us a bunch of different examples. And then he's in class and we're also introduced to Tracy and she then also gets a voiceover. And so right off the bat, within the first five minutes, we've got voiceover from both Jim and Tracy, and that's in and of there itself. There are a lot of voiceovers unique. in this film, absolutely. And we're yeah. going to get two more voiceovers before the end in the form of Paul and Tammy. So we've got a total of four voiceovers, four unique perspectives that the film is exploring from. And I wanted to see what you thought about that as a device, and if you think it works or not within the context of the film, because it's a pretty unique device. 
It is a very unique device, and it stood out to me. It's something I have here in my notes. You know, I would argue that uh, this is a film about Matthew Broderick's character. Um, it's his story because it kind of starts with him and closes with him. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, it's his kind of journey. I think he has the biggest character arc as well. Sure. Uh, but, yeah, to, to tell his story from four points of view, jumping around like it does, uh, is definitely interesting. But I do think it worked here. I agree with that. I do. I think that it's one of those, like this film, I think by the end of it, we'll see there's a number of chances that it takes and they're so subtle, but they're done effectively. So they work. I remember before I watched this film, one of the sort of advanced pre-criticisms I had, right? Cause like I said, I wasn't super stoked on it. And I remember it being very sort of stylistically flat. Let's say I, I, I seem to recall it being just very sort of like, you know, put the camera here. Let's do our, you know, close up, reverse, close up, reverse, you know, get the hell out. Like it didn't really I didn't recall it being made with a lot of visual panache, but it absolutely is, you know, from the from the camera work, from the angles to a lot of the special effects. And if you pay attention, for example, there are a ton of wipes in this movie. Like, I haven't seen wipes in a, in any movie since Star Wars, <laughs> and you don't even notice them, and it was, it was actually pointed out in the commentary track. And when he points it out, it's like, dude, you've used wipes dozens of times. How did I not notice this? <laughs> <laughs> like, that's really noticeable now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Uh, the score was a little different. It was, absolutely. Like you said, the visual effects and some of the makeup uh, that we'll talk about here shortly was very, very, uh, done very, very well. You know, this was kind of that time, though, right? In the, again, the late 90s, early 2000s, when you get this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, like you said, your Paul Thomas Anderson's, you know, you get things like even, you know, as much as we could, you know, herald the the joys of uh, Boogie Nights, you also get films like Magnolia or Punch Drunk Love or, you know, some of these other uh, films that, uh, you know, took some chances or, or you know, kind of stand out. And, and, you know, this to me is is one of those. I sure. will say I've never seen Citizen Ruth. Me neither. Day. I've never seen his first film. And I and this kind of made me want to go back and watch that to see the progression of such. And I probably owe Sideways a rewatch as well. I do as well. I actually I actually realized I've only ever seen Sideways and Election of his films. So I never saw Nebraska. I never saw Citizen Ruth. Uh, a couple others. So I never even saw About Schmidt. And a lot of people have seen that movie. So I got to go back and check me out some Alexander Payne. I'm glad you I'm really glad you like this film. That's awesome. Yeah. So now we're also introduced right afterwards to Jim's good friend named Dave with without a doubt is the film's most shocking edit by far. And this is also yeah. <laughs> this is also a very specific decision by Alexander Payne where he basically kind of wanted to slap the audience awake a little bit, you know, where it's like, oh, hey, you thought you were just getting this cutesy little high school comedy Bam, here's this very, very aggressive cut about how Oof. wet, you know, Tracy gets sexually with this teacher, which obviously is an illicit relationship, right? Like, she's underage. Like, that's not okay. And, you know, he kind of goes on shimmied to... in, like, eight minutes of child grooming, basically, yeah, right? in, in this pred child predatory relationship, this predatory grooming relationship. And, you know... <sighs> It was uncomfortable because, you know, I, I'm trying to remember because there was a chauvinistic era, unfortunately, in our nation where you would say and, and uh, you know, there's obviously leftovers 
from this that still exists. I'm not saying this, you know, portion of the country is gone. But there was this era where you would say, you know, uh, if you had a relationship with a student in some way, shape or form, you know, it's like high five, you know, or especially if it was a female teacher and a male student, it was like, holy crap, I hope he got an A or, you know, it was just this very chauvinistic, crude I don't know. But I don't think the film's taking that point of view. It's not at all. No. Um, In fact, you know, it shows him his whole downfall in 10 minutes. But but to enter into that so early in the film was just, like you said, it was a slap in the face. It it just, it felt like I was transported to another time. Yeah. It's not something that I feel like filmmakers would feel comfortable showing, maybe. I think that's what I'm trying to say. In this day and age... I don't think filmmakers would go there. And You're correct. And that was something that was kind of unique to late 90s filmmaking is you did have a lot of people that were sort of exploring these very sexual taboos through like dark comedy, so to speak. I don't know if you're if you recall sure. the filmmaker Todd Solins. Uh, who made like hap- happiness and um, yep. a few other films. I've seen happiness. Yeah. So, you know, did he do welcome to the dollhouse. I believe he did. Yeah, that was his first film. Right. And then you also had okay. uh, who's the guy we've looked at? Neil LeBute, Right. For better and worse. Right. So, uh, yeah, right. there were the kind of these guys that were on this spectrum of chauvinism, so to speak, where you'd have like a Neil LeBute who's like going all in on it as a reflection and an examination of how men treat those men treat women. And then you have, I think people to like Todd Solons who are kind of on the other side where they're going there, but it's in a very sort of satirical fashion where it's like, it's looked down upon. Right. Uh, and it's perhaps examined. Um, you also had characters in films like little children, uh, the, um, Jackie Earl K Haley character. Uh, so there's a lot of, you know, I think it was something that, it was a, it was a safer time to examine these types of things a little bit, you know. The, right. It was it was a little bit you could you could get away with it, whereas now it's probably it would be a little bit too sensitive to really get that deep into, you know. There was a movie back in '96 that I used to really like as a kid for some stupid reason. the The dialogue was really witty, and it was by a director named Ted Demi, and uh, as Jonathan Demi's brother. Um, same guy that made Blow. Sure. And uh, it's called Beautiful Girls. And it's it stars oh, yeah. a 36-year-old Timothy Hutton who has a crush on a 13-year-old Natalie Portman. And this um, love, lover's affair that, uh, you know, he's got this crush on her and he's trying to decide if he should leave his wife over this. Yeah. It's fucking troubling. Um, I mean, by today's standards. Yeah, but I, th- I mean... I just can't even believe that's like a center, you know... Uh, uh, romance in a in a film this third you know i don't well know. here's it's the a, thing dude the, i mean the, take, I guess. the further back you go the more that's much more common right i mean especially if you go back to you know like late 1800s early 1900s right like every famous author at the time because there was no movies and photographs stuff right like every famous author at the time was like gonna leave his wife for like a 13 year old bride right not saying it's right by any right. means i'm just All saying right. this were this was the style yeah. at the time right this is what you did um and maybe yeah but maybe 96. it's also different when you know you're like your life expectancy is 42 right and you're like well you know at that sure. point 22 duh, you know whatever i mean 13 is probably still young regardless but point is like yes it was definitely a willingness to sort of examine that that you don't sort of see these days. Yeah. I don't know. So anyway, we get into this and it was just a, uh, you know, record scratch moment for me where I was like, Whoa, this is weird. Yeah. And, well now, but the, then, you know, it quickly gets out of it. It does. And you know, it does, uh, you know, it does shoot this guy 
you know, down pretty quickly. Like it shows, you know, the consequences for his actions. Well, yeah, all the way through until the very end, which is actually pretty funny. Yeah, well, and it also sets <laughs> up, ends up two primary points of conflict, right? Because let's also not forget that this sets up elements of the story. The first is it very much contributes to the adversarial nature of the relationship and the way uh, between Jim and Tracy and the way that Jim views Tracy, right? Right. And, you know, I mean, you could sit there and say that he's probably not, he's probably not critical enough of his friend, right, for engaging in this obviously illicit relationship. But at the same time, I do think it's interesting that the film does present Tracy as the one who's kind of like in it for just like cold hearted sex. And like, she's the one who chastises Matthew Broderick for her teacher friend falling in love with her. And he's the one who ends up like breaking down and confessing his love and being like, Oh, we're in love. blah blah blah. So it's actually kind of funny that it does take that traditional trope and at least flip that aspect of it on its head where the roles are reversed. Cause generally the younger girl would, you know, drop everything for this older guy who's like, Dah, you knew what this was. Get the hell away from me. But here it's reversed. Right, right. Yeah, and, you know, and through it all, um, she maintains a position of power. Yeah. I think it establishes her role in the whole thing. Her, her you know, she's the shark, yeah. you know, and she kind of sharked it. And because uh, soon after this is over, we see her kind of playing a similar, or, or at least testing the waters to see what she can get away with uh, with Matthew Broderick as well. Yeah. Now, it also sets up the aspect of we also need Linda to leave Dave so that it can set up uh, Jim ultimately cheating on his wife with her later, right? So if she's... Right. So right. we need to be able to set that up down the road as well. And so there, there is a couple things I want to note, and then there's a question I ask you. The first is that during that scene where it shows the teacher, like, finally kind of crossing that line with Tracy, uh, there's a moment where they share a diet mug root beer. Do you know? You remember that moment? <laughs> I have it in my notes. Root beer bit is a joke, but I was too grossed out at the time to laugh, it says in my notes. Now, Alexander Payne actually intentionally put this in there because it was a reference to medieval times. Not like medieval times, but like the era of the medieval. <laughs> and apparently it was yeah. very common for when two people would consummate their relationship sexually, uh, they would both drink from the same goblet. And so he wanted to take that oh, wow. concept and then said, what would today's version of that be? Got it. Diet mug root beer. Go. <laughs> <laughs> now, the other interesting yeah. thing about this, and this, honestly, Ryan probably would have grossed you out as well, but maybe it could be funny. They actually shot a whole sort of like pre-sex scene in the bedroom. So in the movie, there's that shot where Tracy goes down the hallway and she turns in the bedroom and you see... Dave's arm come out and like bring her in and and like that's as far as we go. They actually shot an entire sequence where we go into the bedroom with them and they start to undress, but it's kind of like kept in like close-ups, right? So you're not really seeing Tracy's right. nudity. And but and then they added this thing where Dave has a giant white head on his shoulder that's all pussy and gross that Tracy can't get over as they're, like, trying to climb in bed with one another. 
And so there was actually a number of these sequence, the sequences that they shot. Like there was a lot of sequences that didn't make it into the final cut because they ultimately felt like it didn't work. And I think that scene is a good example of that. I think that tonally it doesn't match the rest of the film to have that scene in there. It's probably a little bit too slapsticky. So I think it was a wise yeah. cut. But they did film that entire sequence that way. Yeah, and I was trying to think of, like... Because she looks really young in this film. They did a pretty good job of younging her up and making her look high school ready. Um, her hair is phenomenal in this movie, by the way. <laughs> uh, Tracy Flicks, I'm talking about. Uh, but I had to go back and remember, um, you know, what had she been in before this? And it was like, oh, yeah, no fucking shit. She was in Cruel Intentions literally right before this. Mm. Uh, Pleasantville before that, and then Fear uh, was her last big one uh, before that. Oh wow! So, um, and then the you know the nerds will be quick to tell me she was in Twilight, but uh, yeah, she, um, you know, Fear she was obviously uh, played a bit of a siren, you know, sexualized character and cruel intentions as well. So um, you know, this wasn't anything new for her, you know, to play a character in, in a role like this. But uh, yeah, it was a little weird because of the older character, but. Uh, you know, we got through it pretty quickly and, and on with the show. And I, I do agree with you. It, it was if you're going to show something like this, it was handled well and it was used well as a good plot device. Yeah, absolutely. And then shortly thereafter, we get where the film kind of kicks off with its main premise, where we've got this school election coming up. Tracy submits a bunch of signatures to run for president. She's running unopposed. And Jim McAllister does not like this. He does not like this girl. He thinks that she's sort of ruthless and calculating and will do whatever she can to get ahead, even at other people's expense. So he decides that he's going to find another student to run against her. And who does he find but Paul, played by Chris Klein, who had a meteoric rise and just as quick of a fall. And it's actually funny. So uh, in kind of keeping with the different uh, sort of formats that they used, Paul's intro where he's, uh, you know, crashing down the mountain, that's actually stock footage. And Alexander Payne specifically wanted to find some use for stock footage. He just, he's, he, so there are two things. There's a number of things that he likes that he just put in here because he likes them. The first is narration. He's like, I love narration and voiceover. He's like, I know it's not like artistically fashionable, but I love it. So I did it four times. And the other thing is just trying to use as many different, styles and footage etc so like there's stock footage that we've got a scene later that uses rear projection he loves old school rear projection and you don't really notice these things are there until they're pointed out and then you're like wow you actually used quite a number of different uh devices and techniques here it's pretty interesting the conflict you know between jim and tracy is set up um shortly after Again, Jim's friend uh, gets busted for this relationship and then fired and banished. He loses his wife and his family. He has an entire fall from grace and he's shunned from the land. And we never see him until the end of the movie again. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, Jim is left kind of um, bitter, I think, towards Tracy because of this. Yeah. Like, you know, he almost. Uh, do you think he kind of blames Tracy for a part of this or holds a grudge towards her because he lost his friend maybe or something like that? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, I think there's a large aspect of that. And I think that it kind of sets up a larger question of like, what is Jim's real nature? You know? So for example, like this is actually a perfect sort of contrast, right? Where we've got this Paul character, and he's like super naive, right? He's like really good, good hearted. He's an earnest guy. And Mr. McAllister is basically going to convince him to run against Tracy 
because he doesn't want to spend the entire year with Tracy. He finds her annoying. And so you see someone who's like legitimately good-hearted dude like this Paul guy, and then we have Mr. McAllister. And so I'll actually answer a question with a question, Ryan, and say, so Mr. McAllister starts the film off by basically extolling like what a good dude he is and how much he cares about his students, right? And he goes through all these different examples of being there for his people or for his kids. And then we very quickly also sort of see that uh, his best friend is, you know, sleeping with an underage girl. Um, we don't know if this has happened before or if it'll happen again, but like uh, very obviously not a good dude. And we also see what Jim is willing to do over the course of the film. So my question to you is, is this one of those scenarios where Jim was a good guy and it's a little bit of like a breaking bad scenario where he's like, oh, okay, I'll just kind of compromise my values a little bit here and then a little bit here and then a little bit here. And then before you know it, I'm doing this sort of heinous act. Or was he always this sort of bad person and it was just sort of laying in wait and latent and it didn't have the right motivation to come out what do you think about that so that's funny you mentioned this because i have something in my notes here that i wasn't sure when to bring it up but i think now is the time but this movie to me had a ton of parallels to amadeus okay because uh you could argue that jim was like a salieri and tracy flick was a mozart and jim was intent on sabotaging uh, the success of someone who, you know, was going to move on and and bypass him. And he was kind of stuck. Um, he Jim saw himself as a pillar of nobility. But we also saw examples, as we did in Amadeus, where he was willing to stoop low mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, cut uh, Tracy Flick off at the knees as much as possible um, just for his own amusement. Because, um, you know, and in the end, we find out Jim is just a an example of mediocrity. You know, he's just kind of that vanilla ice cream that has just always been there, and he's never going to be anything more. And even when he cuts himself free of all his chains at the end, and he's left to his own devices to go get a fresh start, he still just kind of lands, you know, lays up and make makes par. So, um, yeah, I kind of saw Jim as a Salieri character, and we had similar debates about Salieri, if I recall, on the Amadeus episode, uh, just a couple episodes back, um, is, you know, was he a good character? Or did we like the director's cut where, you know, he tried to take advantage of uh, Amadeus's wife? Yeah. You know, or or was that a bad look? And so, um, yeah, I thought this was kind of a, a similar question, uh, you know, of ethics and, and morality, which is funny because uh, that's a, a thing that gets brought up uh, kind of a running theme throughout this film. They bring up ethics and mora versus morality several times. Yeah. So, um, and yet it's a film, you know, filled with people willing to compromise both their ethics and morality <laughs> for various reasons <laughs> at various times. So, yeah, I don't, I, I can't, I mean, I think he thinks he's a good person, um, but I think, you know, this is a human tale. I think that, um, are any of us good people, right? I mean, well, we're no. all capable. Yeah, it's that whole thing. It's the whole thing of what, you know, who knows what evils, you know, lies in the hearts of men kind of deal, you know, right? Yeah, well, and there's also an element of the, you know, nobody's the villain in their own story, right? There's a huge element of right. that. But I think that Jim is not the person that he thinks he is, and he's never really just had an opportunity for that to come out. But I think that more than anything, we're kind of overlooking 
the fact that he's in this like very unhappy relationship, you know, so you've got two things that he's sort of cheating at. Right. And that's kind of the interesting thing. He's cheating at the election by the end of it. He's cheating along the way as well by sort of trying to interfere with the process and introduce the Paul character uh, as president. And then separately, you know, he's, he ends up cheating on his wife with this Linda character. And so he's a guy who's def definitely willing to cheat. But I do get the sense that he was probably not that way when he was like 26 and just graduated with a master's and like going out for his first year as a teacher, right? Like, I think that the 20, the the 15 to 20 year ago version of Jim McAllister was fresh faced and idealized and he was going to go change the world and get people to care about stuff. And like, I think that, right. you know, after 15 years of just watching the same class come in and out and the same people go on to do nothing and, you know, not really making as much of a difference as he might have thought at a certain point in his life, right? Like he just kind of has a, a what does it all mean, you know, kind of disposition and that allows him to sacrifice his values because, you know, he's probably like, well, what am I going to do, you know? He's continue to be an upstanding moral citizen and still have, you know, a wife with no passion and we can't get pregnant and you know, spend time with this chick that I don't like. I just want to get the hell out of here. Like he's a, he's a desperately unhappy person, you know? And I think that when people are that unhappy, they'll do things to mitigate that unhappiness. Like, you know, getting rid of some rights to not have to spend a year with someone you don't like. I think too, we, we come into Jim's uh, story right around his mid, I mean, this is kind of Jim's midlife crisis. This is something else that occurred to me. Yeah. Is like, this is, he's right around 40 years old. Yep. Like you said, he um, has postponed having a child until now for all these reasons that he lays out. And he talks about all the things that they've had to overcome um, and goals that, you know, they have taken priority and so forth. So, you know, he's, uh, he's a guy who has had society's thumb on him for a long time. And, uh, you know, uh, as someone that, you know, has recently gone through a bit of a midlife crisis myself, I could say that's a real ass thing. And not so much that you have to act out, but you just start to ask yourself questions. It's a gut check where it's like, OK, what's going on? You just tend to take stock of things. It's like a yeah. a chapter, you know, uh, place, uh, you know, a beginning and end of a chapter in your life, so to speak. And I think that we kind of cut into Jim's story right as that's all happening. And then this Tracy Flick explosion happens in his life. And he's like. No more, you know, and he kind of acts out uh, on all these things. He's lost his friend. He's disconnected from his wife, like you're saying. Um, and we're set up uh, quite a bit in the prologue of this film or in the intro to this film, how annoying Tracy is. Yeah. Like with her hand always up. And, you know, he's he's kind of spotted her along the way long before, you know, a lot of these things transpired as her being a nuisance and, um, and one has to always imagine too. And we're led to, uh, we're kind of shown this at the end of the film, the epilogue of the film, uh, that there is always one Tracy flick in every class. You, no matter where you go, there's always one. And, uh, we all kind of, and that's kind of what makes films like this so enjoyable. Um, whether it's Brat Pack flicks or a film like this or American Pie, I feel like everybody knows somebody like all these characters. Like they're kind of pigeonholed in such a way that we all are familiar with uh, the motif that they're leaning into. So, um, you know, I, I kind of feel like we all knew a Tracy Flick or a Tammy, Tammy Metzler or a Paul Metzler uh, or even a Jim McAllister growing up. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so the next day we find out that 
Tracy, well, not we find out, but Tracy finds out that Paul is in fact going to run for president. And it's also, there's this very funny, like, Native American scream that they use anytime Tracy is upset. <laughs> it's an audio cue from a, a movie called Navajo Joe that was actually an Enyo Very Mora familiar. I looked this up. I yeah. was very curious. <laughs> I, uh, real quick, I do have a clip of that that we can play for people just so they can hear. And they use that a few different times, always to great effect. It's always very welcome. And then, they, of course, they play the long version when she has that, like, freak-out moment and tears off all the posters, right? And You stated that was uh, an Ennio Morricone uh, track? It, it was and, indeed. Uh, yes, yes, sir. And, and Navajo Joe starred Burt Reynolds as a Native American back when that was cool. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if uh, Charlton Heston can play a Puerto Rican for Orson Welles, then, hey, why not? <laughs> and uh oh after my god <laughs> give me my rum <laughs> and then after that you know paul walks uh he goes home and he walks in on his sister tammy and she's you know kissing this other girl who's very much the object of her affection if not the object of her obsession right and she really really likes this girl and this is also when Tammy starts to get her voiceover as well. So by now, again, we've got four official voiceovers uh, that are going to sort of cycle through the course of this film. And she does explain that she's actually not gay. She is just attracted to the person. And it just so happens the only people that she's been attracted to are females. Now, the other girl that she's kind of is, again, the object of her affection. She's not exactly comfortable with, you know, being in a same-sex relationship. She's experimenting. She's not really exactly sure if this is something she wants. And rather than explore this in a healthy manner, she just gets very upset and decides that she is going to start dating her brother. That's right. She's going to get together with Paul to make Tammy jealous. So what is Tammy going to do in response? She's going to run for president herself against Paul and as well against uh, <laughs> the girl that she was in love with, who is part of Paul's campaign. Now, Ryan, you mentioned a little bit ago how there's like one sort of Tracy <laughs> flick in every school, high school, whatever. I, I think that's one of the great things that this film does is it boils down these four very distinct and different archetypes that are all very relatable through the course of our four main characters, right? Which would be the Jim McAllister character, Tracy Flick. Paul, as well as Tammy. So let's do a little bit of uh, just like a, I don't know, a little bit of an exercise game, whatever. But let's kind of break down like these four distinct personalities into like what they represent. You want to do this real quick with me? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. What you got? Sorry. So the first would be Tracy, right? Now, Tracy, I think, is a little bit, especially still to this day, it's an archetype that we sort of continue to see. I think that most recently she could probably be compared to like Leslie Nope from Parks and Rec, uh, who I think has a sure. lot of Tracy Flick. Um, and I think that there's a couple of, uh, all, all like in real life characters, I think you could also say that like Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton is very much a Tracy Flick, right? That was, I thought of that, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, and that, and, and, you know, we mean that in good and bad ways, right? But at the end of the day, it's just that like unbridled ambition, right? To just go, go for it with, and not feel like there's any destiny other than this great thing that you were meant for, right? There's no other, there's I, no other uh, resolution or, you know, life that exists in Tracy's head other than the one that she's living. 
I have in my notes here that um, half of me has always hated the Tracy Flicks of the world, and half of me actually is Tracy Flick. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I get it. Now, here's the funny thing. We've got this uh, Paul character, right? Now, I was trying to think of Paul because Paul, Paul is basically like a naive do-gooder puppet, right? Like... He has really no idea what he's doing. He, Jim is really running the show, and he's just kind of going along and standing where he's supposed to and smiling. To me, as I thought about it, reminds me an awful lot of what Herschel Walker is doing right now over in Georgia. <laughs> like, just zero qualifications whatsoever, but he's handsome, he smiles nice, uh, he's, he's, he was literally the high school or collegiate running back all-star but just horribly unqualified for the position and doesn't even really know what he's saying. Like the, like when Paul gives his first speech in the auditorium to literal crickets, fantastic read. <laughs> like that's exactly every time Herschel Walker gets up on a podium. So I think Herschel Walker is a good, uh, Paul, but I, I, I don't know that Herschel Walker's as nice of a guy as Paul was, but I think it's a fair comparison. Yeah, I mean, I think Paul means no harm, you know. Uh, I think that he has the best of intentions. Um, I just think that he's kind of the all-American dumb jock, you know. Yeah. And who knows, you know, if he... I think he, of all these people, um, has the potential to outgrow this phase of his life. I think he's also kind of a victim of his own circumstances and surroundings, you know. I think that his behaviors... Like you said, he is a bit of a puppet, like... You know, I think that when you're involved in sports that heavily and you're the star quarterback, um, you're used to having a coach. You're used to, you know, showing up on time. It's a very soldier mentality of do this, do that, and you will succeed and you'll have success. We're a part of a team. And when he was removed from that so abruptly after his leg accident and the skiing accident, um, I do feel like he was a bit lost. Like he now is left to make his own decisions. He's been removed from the team element. Sure. And um, this is what we get. Uh, you know, he wasn't prepared uh, to go out and think independently and to go uh, off uh, and do his own thing, you know. Yeah. But I do feel like out of all three of these, he's the less uh, the least cemented into his role. I think that he could outgrow this and and uh, and strive on his own. Um, yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, he's he's, just, he's an action figure. He's a puppet. You know, you just hey, put me here, prop me up, you know, make me smile, make me wave. But like, I have no idea what yeah. I'm doing, you know. He's going to be a fantastic assistant manager in like a grocery store or something like that. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, we've also got Jim. And Jim, you know, I, it, it took me a minute here because Jim's basically, I think, reflective of like what a lot of people would call like the deep state or something, right? But it's like the guy behind the scenes or, you know, like the, 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 the great and powerful Oz, right? The guy behind the curtains who's really calling the shots, but you don't really see his face too much. As I thought about it, I was like, you know what? Carl Rove, man. Carl Rove during George W.'s presidency, um, where he was just like go like making all of these horrible, horrible, uh, you know, political decisions regarding like torture with the CIA and stuff like that in Afghanistan and all this stuff, right? And he was just doing it all behind the scenes. And like W didn't really know what was going on. He's like, What? We're gonna ban what? We're gonna torture who? Like, sure, sounds good. I'm kind of out of my league here. And and old Carl's like, Don't even worry about that, Georgia boy, just sign right here. So I'm gonna disagree with you on that. Um, because I feel like 
the the example you're proposing is premeditated, and I feel like Jim shoots from the hip. I feel like he is a ter- has a terrible gut instinct. I feel like when he um, just goes by the playbook, that's when he's a good guy. It's when he tries to go off script in the moment, he's a terrible improviser and makes the worst possible decisions in that moment. Um, and it's when we start to see him be reactionary. Uh, is when we start to see him go down this hole in, in, that he's dug himself in. And then once he stops being reactionary and removes these triggers from his life, um, we see him kind of straighten his life back out again. And in the end, he's all right. I think that, uh, you know, he lands back on his feet and he writes some of these wrongs. But, uh, yeah, I think that he's reacting to a lot of things. I don't know that he's like, you know, pre pre-planning them because you see him rushing around. Like when he's cheating on his wife, for example, like so many of those things are, um, in the moment, like him just mid-class saying, fuck this. And then he goes and gets that hotel room and the champagne and puts it on ice and all of that. Um, you know, and that's why he's constantly caught off guard. Like, you know, so surprised by the consequences of his actions, because I don't think he's thought them through. Like he's not really, uh, he's not used to living this kind of role and, and he's not planned it out at all. He's just kind of shooting from the hip and going off of gut instinct and he's not good at it. <laughs> yeah. So, but the it. difference here is that like, it's uh, what you're talking about is with relationship to his personal life. Whereas I'm specifically discussing his relationship to the election. So, because this, because what we're doing right now is we're, is we're saying like, okay, these four different archetypes are reflective of these people in real life. Right. As it relates to right. an election. And Jim is basically the guy behind the curtain who's pulling all the levers because, again, he's the one who interrupts the – like, don't forget, if Jim doesn't intervene, Tracy is running unopposed. Jim does not like that scenario, and so Jim wants to rig the election. Very topical, right? Jim wants to rig the election to get his preferred outcome. So he goes, he finds Paul, he he convinces him to run, he interferes in that process, right? He's trying to institute his own guy because he doesn't like the other guy. And as a matter of fact, he does that so much so that when it comes down and the other guy wins, he yet again interrupts the process by throwing away votes to toss the thing in his guy's favor. So he's completely manipulating the election from behind closed doors. He doesn't now he doesn't get away sure, with sure. it, but he still does it. But again, it's all reactionary. It's all in the moment. He's but it doesn't matter. He's still like pulling he... he's still pulling the strings from he's still the one pulling the levers. Like again, without without him, there's literally no election. The only reason we have an election is because Jim McAllister got involved. Uh, I I will clarify by stating this and then we can move on to Tammy, but I think Jim acts on emotion, not ration. So I, I look at someone like Carl Rove as a methodical thinker, someone that's calculating. He's playing chess while you're playing checkers. But I look at Jim as an emotional reactionary person. I almost look at him as like, uh, you know, the, the orange Cheeto face guy that we had last time. I, you know, where he just isn't thinking things through. He's just reacting in the moment based on how he feels in that second. You know, these things happen, they trigger him and he's like, fuck that. This is how we're handling that. And he just, you know, responds accordingly. Sure. Anyway. And then we've on. got Tammy and Tammy would be, I don't know, Ross Perot, some independent candidate. That's just going to like <laughs> throw a bomb in the entire process. That was the only person I could come up with. Right. Like, it's either she's either a Zapatista revolutionary that just wants to burn the thing to the ground or she's Ross Perot who's just getting in there and fucking shit up. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, because <laughs> in that, I would agree with you because in that uh, scenario, Ross Perot had nothing really to lo- lose or gain. He just yeah, threw and and, in, threw and when it came down to it, happened. he wasn't even on the ballot. I think when all was said and done, I still don't. <laughs> I still don't recall yeah. if he ended up putting his name on the ballot or not. Like, because I because I remember he like dropped out seven different times. Yeah, that scene where uh, T- Tammy Metzler uh, gives her you know her speech and throws her hat in the ring. Uh, that was flawless. So she was like, you know what? Fuck this election. <laughs> it was. As so a matter much. of fact, I actually have a clip of that that we're going to listen to right now. Who cares about this stupid election? We all know it doesn't matter who gets elected president of Carver. Do you really think it's going to change anything around here? Make one single person smarter or happier or nicer? The only person it does matter to is the one who gets elected. The same pathetic charade happens every year. And everyone makes the same pathetic promises just so they can put it on their transcripts to get into college. So vote for me, because I don't even want to go to college. And I don't care. And as president, I won't do anything. The only promise I will make is that if elected, I will immediately dismantle the student government so that none of us will ever have to sit through one of these stupid assemblies again. Fantastic. Fantastic. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the cool things that Payne does with this sequence, by the way, is if you look, both Tracy and Paul's speeches are given a bunch of different coverage, like shot from three or four different angles. And Tammy's is all in one uncut speech. And the idea is supposed to be that like she's like the no-nonsense, no-bullshit person, right? Whereas the other no people, edits needed. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. An interesting thing, too, is that uh, they they really apparently didn't have to do that many takes to get her to do that. And she actually like forgot her lines. And so a large part of that was sort of like halfway improvised. And she oh, wow. was like an entirely new actress as well. Um, she had only done one other film before this film. And the only reason that she got hired is because at the last minute. Miss Thora Birch, who was cast in this role, walked off set because of creative differences with Alexander Payne. Wow. Yeah. So uh, and and it was a huge deal at the time because uh, this was the late 90s and Thora Birch was pretty much the biggest celebrity on this uh, film outside of Matthew Broderick. Like Reese Witherspoon wasn't a huge known name yet. Matthew Broderick hadn't really done anything in a long time, but Thora Birch, this is coming off of like now and then and all those films that she was doing around that time. And so, yeah, yeah. she, uh, she was originally cast as she had American beauty this year, if I recall. Yes, exactly. Yep. So, uh, that was kind of a big deal for her to walk off set. Another interesting thing about this. Uh, I don't know if you saw this in your research is that they actually shot this, not only at an actual functioning high school in Nebraska, outside of Omaha, But they even went so far as to shoot during classes. So when they're filming the scenes in the classrooms, other classes are having their science and history and English classes around them. So apparently, if you you actually listen to some of the audio close enough, you'll even hear certain murmurs of other classes. And that's all live and authentic. Yeah. And uh, even so much as when they were giving these speeches and others... um uh, shots in the gymnasium, they were using real students as extras and they were having a hard time finding participation because uh, the students uh, thought it would be fun at first, but uh, quickly realized 
how sets are run and said this sucks and they didn't want to do it because <laughs> it takes fucking forever. So um, I guess if you look in some of the wide shots of all the crowd, you'll see a lot of the crew that they uh, put in there. So you'll see like actually nice. full grown adults if you pinch and zoom. So. Uh, anyways, that, that's, I digress. That's very funny. Yeah. And uh, they actually were able to get uh, local high school students for all of the background high school students in the different classes. So those are all people that went to that high school that they were able to get. And then I guess uh, they ended up also sort of discovering three actors. So there's the two ballot counters, if you recall them at the end. Um, yes. Yeah. So those were basically students at the school that had never acted before at all. They just like went up and like shot their shot and it was like, hey, we like your look and we like your delivery. Come on in. And that one of those guys, the taller guy, has actually since gone on to do some of like the Final Destination films and a couple other things. So he definitely got a little bit of a break. And then Chris Klein. Oh, cool. I had no idea that Chris Klein was discovered for this movie in Omaha, yeah. Nebraska. Like he had never acted right. a day in his life outside of for school productions. Blew my mind too. <laughs> yeah, when I found that out. Yeah, I mean he's I don't know why I thought American Pie came out before this. I thought for certain uh this was after American Pie. Uh but I was wrong. Yeah. This was his his breakout his very, role. very his very first film, which I mean he does a great job. Like he does not give the impression of someone who hasn't acted before, especially with like some of the broader comedic stuff that he does. Like I love his face when he's getting the blowjob from Tammy's girlfriend. Like <laughs> it's just so funny and so over the top. Right. Like, yeah. Um, and then just his like, gee golly jillikers all shucksness right like it's so yeah it's so believably naive like he really is that just good sweethearted kid who like doesn't ever stop to think for a minute that other people like might not want the best for him and others i i love too how that was paired with some rated r dialogue at times yeah to where you know, he would bring this like you know Andy Griffith style, Opie golly shucks attitude. But then he would be like, you know, uh, in a very nonchalant, quick drop of a line, just say, yeah. And then we would go to the jacuzzi and fuck for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> like it was no big deal. Absolutely. And it's kind of funny that you bring that up because one of the things I found out as well is that this screenplay and this movie was actually based on a book. But it was based on an unpublished book that was sitting in the writer's desk for years. And he wrote this book called Election on Spec, which for those of you who don't know means you're not, you don't, you're not given a contract, right? You just decide, oh, I'm going to write a book or a screenplay one day. And you write it and you hope that one day you can sell it and you rarely are able to. That's spec writing. So he just wrote this book on a whim and he did have an agent and his agent was basically like, I don't know what the hell you think this is because it's too high school for adults and there's too much sex in it for high school. So shelve it and never bring it to the public's eye. Let's and never <laughs> speak of it again. Exactly. <laughs> and so he was like, okay. And it just sat in his desk for like five years. And then he was talking with someone who he told about this unfinished book and it was like one of the producers that was getting ready to that wanted to find a new project for Alexander Payne because I guess they were having a hard time finding projects that he would agree to do. 
And so they thought he would love the book. They convinced the author to give him the book, gave it to Alexander Payne, who sat on it for at least six months, if not a year, was not interested in doing a high school thing, didn't even read it whatsoever, and then read it and was like, oh, this is exactly my speed. Yeah, let's do this. So to your point, the fact that, you know, that odd juxtaposition of sort of naivete and innocence um, up against some very sort of like nonchalant graphic sexuality or sexual comments is very much sort of a hallmark of the original book that carried over into the screenplay. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, we haven't talked about this, but this is rated R. So yeah. they, they did take some chances here with some of the content. Yeah, and there's it, it kind of it creeps up on you. Like, I remember sort of thinking back, like, oh, I don't think there's a lot of sex in this movie. And then, like, there actually is a lot of sex in this movie. I think it's easy to think otherwise because it's not sexy sex, right? It's not right. like police thriller yeah. sex. It's not romance sex. Like, it's there's no saxophone playing. Yeah, right. exactly. There's like it's like cold calculating sex of him trying to get his wife pregnant, you know, from behind, so you don't even see their face and there's zero passion. And then the other women come on and start looking at him. You know, like that scene was very very funny. Um, you know, there's a later scene where he has once again, dispassionate sex with his wife. There's the scene of him having sex with Dave's ex-wife, right? The trying to get the motel. There's the very graphic descriptions of sex that the teacher gives, uh, and sleeping with Tracy. So it's weird because it's not a sexy movie, but there is a lot of sex in it. It's kind of interesting. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Well, hello there. You look young and cheerful. Is this your first time voting? It sure is. I just turned 18, and boy, am I nervous. Are you my ballot? Well, I suppose I am. I'll tell you what. How about I sing you a song and explain to you how it all works? Well, that'd be swell. We're back in 1776 when we became the great country of the USA. That's when we came together and fought off the Brits and established our democracy. Since then, every couple of years, we all try to come together and vote. Half of us end up disappointed and the other half go out and gloat. See, Timmy, for hundreds of years, folks have been filling me out based on their educated opinions and putting me in a big old pile to be counted up. Whoever gets the most votes gets to make decisions for the people for a while, or sometimes indefinitely, like Mitch McConnell. But we decided early on the system needed a polish, so Congress founded the Electoral College. Now, states decide most of this stuff, but barely based on their size. girlfriend told you that your size doesn't matter so you went and filled her up with your baby batter now she's home and knocked up and you're out here voting for three because she don't have a choice no more because a ballot's like me you know women couldn't vote until 1920 and many black folks couldn't vote until the voting rights act passed in 1965 well that's bullshit dude that's totally bullshit dude well, back in 1845, they chose to vote in November on the first Tuesday. Which is super awkward when you face your family at dinner around the holidays. 
daddy starts drinking cheap bottles of wine And then your brother starts yelling and your mama starts crying All because you cast your vote for fewer cops or some marriage for gays Oh boy Okay, I swear it gets better, hang on, hang on Think you're good voting in the election Some asshole comes along and starts an insurrection And his homies smear their poop on the walls And bring a noose for the vice president And you gotta spend the next month Remembering the difference between a podium and a lectern Cause some guy took one Hang on, hang on, stop, stop, oh, stop This all sounds terrible Well, that's our democracy It's gotten us this far, I guess Isn't there a better way? What are you, a socialist? No, but I... Tell you what, let's go in there, you fill me out, and then we can go smoke a joint together in the parking lot. I, uh, I voted against that last time. Ah, yeah, goddammit. And now, back to the show. Yeah, I mean, I would argue that the sex is simply used as, you know, a plot device, uh, most often, yeah, to, you know, tether things together and string things together. It's, you know, I mean, it's, it's something that in that that happens in society that changes our life in various ways. So I think that uh, he's just kind of using it in the way that it happens in real life, sure, not necessarily in the way that we want to see it in movies. Even even at its ugliest, right? Even pointing out that like, Correct. yes, teachers do yes. engage in relationships with seventeen-year-old students, and it's not pleasant, but it happens. More often than we like. It's not pretty. (laughs) And this is what happens when that goes on. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, and after she gives, so getting back to the story, after Tammy gives her, you know, screw it all speech, she ends up getting suspended, which she is just happier than a pig and shit about. And we see Tracy putting up these banners. By the way, I love when Tracy freaks out. She she's having that scene where, you know, she she falls trying to put up the banner. She looks over. She sees a sign of Paul. It's where we get that Navajo Joe Native American screen. But I just love (laughs) I just love Paul's advertisement that his slogan is Paul Metzler. You Betzler. I just think that's hilarious. <laughs> like that's the best slogan ever. Paul Metzler, you Betzler. I I fucking knew you were gonna love that, dude. That is so Simpsons. That is like right out of the Simpsons playbook. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was hysterical. And then she, I, you know, they they play the whole song. She has the freak out moment where she tears down all the posters. And then I'm sure you loved like I did the shot where she looks down at her hands and they're all cut up, and she literally has blood on her hands. <laughs> and then after that is when we get that super cool shot of her again it felt like a it's like the uh, Hitchcock shot where you know the person's trying to dispose of the dead body except instead of a dead body it's these banners and posters that she's very ashamed that right. she tore down and you know in the same respect you know again you get the the rear projection her driving and looking in the rear view like like out of Psycho right when she steals the money or something it's like that same shot yeah so, you know, again, like you wouldn't like I don't I, I, I never sat there and was like, ah, yes, election. Alexander Payne certainly used rear projection in that one scene. Right. But then you start like actually noticing it's like, wow, he did this little thing with this scene and this little thing with this scene. And they're not flashy. He doesn't call a ton of attention to him. He kind of lets them exist on their own. And that's exactly what I respect about the film and how he put it together. That's awesome, man. Yeah. I mean, it's just 
it's all these things that you're talking about, all these references and you know to to different genres and different other you know auteurs throughout history. But it's all wrapped up in this bow of Americana, you know, Midwestern, you know, wholesomeness. Yeah. So it's easy to overlook, like like we talked about about the sex or you know all of these things. It's it's Nebraska sex. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's not LA sex. It's not New York sex. This is Nebraska sex. This is what goes on in the Midwest and it's Americana. (laughs) And so it's easy to overlook how, you know, evil some of these people are being or, or, you know, it's kind of like, uh, uh, Fargo is the same way where, you know, because it's happening in, in, you know, Minnesota, North Dakota area. And everybody's got this, you know, Oh geez, you know, accent. It's really, easy to overlook how evil and wicked all these people are being to each other or the shit they've put themselves in, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And we even, uh, see that where, you know, Jim finally does cross that line with Linda and he does have sex with her. Right. And it's not going to stop there. He's basically like, he's ready to leave his wife. And she says, Hey, why don't you go get us a motel? You know, we'll, you can pick me up after school and we'll go there and we'll have a great time and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he, basically comes up with this impromptu pop, pop quiz to give his class and then bails and goes and sets up this whole thing. And when he goes to pick her up after class, uh, she's nowhere to be found, of course. He goes back to the hotel. He's calling her. She's not picking up. And he even goes back to her house looking for her. That's when he ends up getting stung by the bee and just kind of making matters worse. Goes home after, you know, he can't find Linda anywhere. And, oh, look, she's actually there and she is confessing to... His wife, Diane, that they slept together and they had and that, you know, he came up with this whole thing to woo her at the hotel. And so he pretty much knows that he's screwed and just kind of pieces out real quick. Right. So he comes home after all of this planning in the hotel and all of that. Um, and for starters, when he gets stung by the bee, that bee makeup on his eye is fucking amazing. <laughs> yeah, and they a do a couple job. of really tight close ups on his eye. Sure. And um it's still amazing, even in close-up, uh, it holds up. But uh, more than that, he lets himself in the house and goes to the fridge and gets a drink. And there's this, you know, big hole. Uh, him kind of unwinding after a long, stressful day, wondering what was going on. And then you hear a baby cry yeah. in the next room. And I thought that was such cool foreshadowing Very well because done, he yeah. instantly knows he's fucked. Yep. Because that baby is Linda's, and uh, yeah, because yeah, because like, it, earlier when uh, when they started uh, when they started getting down, instead of like showing the actual sex, there's this little sort of boom down where they're making out in the back, and then you see the baby in the foreground. So it sets right. up that moment at that time, and then it pays yep. off right here. So yeah, totally good call on that. Yeah, I thought that was just re- there's a there's a few things like that throughout this film that. Uh, I thought were really cool edits, you know, or choices that, that, you know, it's, you're, you're leading into something without beating us over the head with it, or you don't have to show anything. You just, with that one sound edit, you know, he's fucked. And it's like, Oh no, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Sure enough. He barely peeks his head around the corner and they're both on the couch crying and Linda's got her baby. And it's like, Oh, you're like so fucked. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And then, uh, kind of speaking to our earlier point about there being some sort of surprising, technicalities in this film uh the prayer sequence you know where it's the day before the election and it shows all of all of them praying to god for you know their various responses because of the way that the camera booms up and the exact way that it does sort of looking down on them uh there was there were no ceilings that were tall enough on locations so they basically had to had to build four unique sets 
that were able to accommodate this shot that Alexander Payne wanted to do for each of the four of them as they're narrating it. And then it was, oh wow. Yeah. So they, so, you know, you figure it's like, you know, there's all this space vertically, but then they actually ran into an issue where um, there wouldn't, there wouldn't have been enough room for the crane a and B Alexander Payne wanted to get a, a straight vertical shot, right? Not one that sort of like, craned up and out but he wanted it to just sort of start as a close-up and then go literally just straight up so he actually contacted a company that had come up with a unique cable and pulley system and so basically you they have this like cage it's like a vertical cage with a cable suspension system that you attach the camera to and then you just slowly crank a wheel that hoists the camera up through cables which is why they're able to get like a specifically vertical shot that goes straight up and down Nice. Yeah. So like a dumbwaiter almost. Totally. Exactly. Cameras yep. Without without with a little stabilization. That's awesome, dude. Yeah. Yeah. So that was how they were able to get that. And again, you know, like you you don't really it doesn't call attention to itself. You just kind of figure like, oh, that was a nice little crane shot. And then you find out the making of it's like, oh, wow, that's that's a legit effort. Good job, Alexander. You didn't have to go through. all Yeah, that, but you did. And we're better for it. And so is your movie. So there's a lot. Yeah, of it's almost like, like he took this film way more serious than we did. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then like once he points it out, you're like, ah, oh, well, look at that. Yeah, you did do a good job. Well, hey, good job, buddy. Appreciate that. Appreciate you pointing this out. I missed it the first time around. I mean, you know, these are <laughs> things that I kind of feel like you need to make those decisions on your sophomore effort. So if Citizen yeah. Ruth was his first movie, and and you're going into your second, you know, the second your second film. You know, anybody can, can, you know, have a fluke good first film, uh, you know, but if you flop or make your, I think you feel like your second film or your sophomore effort is really kind of what makes or breaks your career. So uh, he kind of did have to swing for the fences and he had some certifiable talent on this film too. I mean, Matthew Broderick and Reese Witherspoon and, and uh, you know, some of that. So yeah, I think he did a good job, man. Absolutely. And so after Tracy gets suspended, her parents decide that they're going to show her what's what, quote unquote, and punish her by sending to sending her to an all girls school, an all girls high school called Immaculate Heart, which I'm wondering if if that's a reference to an Immaculate Heart we have out here in Los Angeles. That's an all girls school. I have a bunch of friends that like went there when they were younger. So I just kind of thought that was funny. Or maybe it's just a very popular name for all girls high schools. And there's like an immaculate heart in every single county or state or some shit. Yeah, I think that's kind of a generic, uh, <laughs> like, you know, George Washington High kind of deal. Yeah, probably. So Jim's calling Linda obsessively. She's ignoring him. He's falling apart. And it's election day. And so everybody goes in. Uh, you know, we see Paul voting for Tracy and we see Tracy voting for herself. We quickly see the counters. They take the ballots. They go. They count them. And Jim just couldn't care less, right? He's got a, a little bit of a situation he's trying to deal with. And he's just kind of like, you know, tell me who won. Tell me who won. And the counter's like, oh, I've got it like a real close. We've got Tracy by one vote, right? And so Jim's like, God damn it. Let me go ahead and count these. He does his count. And he comes up with the same thing, Tracy by one vote. And so he's about to certify it. And he looks over and he sees her celebrating, pogoing around the high school and says, you know what? No, screw that. That girl's not going to get it. I'm not going to make I'm not going to let her take this one. I am going to interfere with the process and get rid of two votes. Right. And so then he's like, well, you got a little bit of a mistake here. We have Paul by one vote. And the guy's like, no, no, no. And so they end up going to the principal's office and, uh, you know, it turns out that, okay, yeah, well, it looks like it's Paul by one vote. 
The joke of it, too, is we, we didn't even mention that Paul voted for himself. We go into the election booth and... Uh, no, Paul you know, voted for Tracy. Tracy votes for us. Or Paul votes for Tracy, yeah. I'm sorry. Yes. So uh, everybody votes for themselves, and he... He has this dialogue that states that it's just not right. He doesn't feel good doing that. So he's going to go ahead and uh, give the other person a shot yeah. votes for Tracy. And, and, and sure enough, she wins by his vote. Correct. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, you know, uh, they end up announcing that Paul is the president. And Jim McAllister goes back to his motel that he had set up for banging. That didn't work out in his favor. Uh, but the next day is not going to work <laughs> out either there. because he's going to go into uh, go into school, get called into the principal's office. And who is there but like eight different people, including Tracy and her mom and the principal. And, of course, the janitor, the janitor at the beginning who saw him. I love the foreshadowing. By the way, super funny. Uh, the janitor uh, that they use was the actual janitor for that high school. And <laughs> and he wanted nothing to do with the movie. And they, like, begged him and begged him. They were like, dude, you look perfect. Like, please play this role. Please play this role. And he was like, no. Refused to do the movie. One of the producers was like, what if I got you a six-pack? And he was like, son of a bitch, I'm in. <laughs> so they literally bought the janitor for a six pack in that film. So if you ever find yourself Perfect. filming in Nebraska, make sure to have access to some six packs. You'll get away with some shit. Yeah, because I thought he looked familiar and I looked him up on IMDb and he's got an IMDb credit for only this movie. Yep. And I was like, oh, he is he's not familiar. Literally the janitor. The actual janitor, though. <laughs> That's hilarious. So yeah. Great. And then um, I guess high schools in Nebraska often don't have windows installed in them to key, actually to help manage the costs with regards to heating and cooling. And so oh. when they were looking at the high schools, they were like, hey, there's no windows at any of this high school. Makes it kind of feel like a prison, doesn't it? This is perfect. So on top of everything else, they really got this like whole quality of school being a prison. Because if you look, there's no windows in any of the classrooms or even like the hallways or anything. That would really help with lighting, too. That was the uh, other thing, yes. Because you don't yes. have any lighting transitions. <laughs> yeah. No, they, they absolutely said that as well. You could control all the lighting. Um, you know, there, there's something we skipped over very quickly, too, and that is uh, on his uh, way into school, Matthew Broderick is now living in the hotel. He's been kicked out of his house. And we get a shot of him showering at the school. Yes. And the, the shot of him showering at the school is almost a shot-for-shot shot remake of his uh, opening sequence in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, where he's showering uh, in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah. He, like, lifts his arms up and... It is. Singing into the shower head and the whole bit. It's fucking awesome. Uh, but this is like the depressing, you know, middle-aged version. No, obviously. absolutely. I mean, and Not that's... happy and carefree. And that's one of the great things about the casting. Super funny thing, dude. Check this out. At the time that they filmed Election, Alexander Payne had never seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He just... Oh, what? He just really liked Matthew Broderick as an actor, and, and Broderick expo expressed an interest but he had never seen Ferris Bueller. So like that whole wow. like separate aspect of it, he recognizes it, but that played no part in his decision because he'd never seen it. He's since seen it, but he never saw it at the time. He's like, yeah, give me that Biloxi blues fella. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, after all that uh, goes down, obviously Jim is screwed and uh, you know, principal calls him on his bullshit. He says, yep. He resigns. Very quietly, principal accepts, and he is on his way, and he's out. And very quickly, 
moving on. Nothing to see here, folks. We learn that Paul goes on to have a very charmed high school life despite losing the presidency. Uh, we uh, we see that Tammy has a new love interest at her school. Uh, Tracy's happy as the school president. And then we've also got Jim who has basically tricked himself or convinced himself that he's teaching again when really he's just a museum docent in New York. And he uh, complete with a very shitty studio apartment that costs way too much money. And, you know, before we kind of wrap things up here, Ryan, one of the things we haven't really discussed to any sort of degree is like the acting. You know, this is very much a character driven sure. film and we haven't even really talked too much about the acting. But like, I mean, you know, what did you think about the, our four main characters and how they approached the roles? Dude, they were fucking great. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for, for so many reasons, because like you said, a lot of this film is driven by voiceover. Mm -hmm. um, there were a lot of weird things going on uh, that were unconventional. So they had a lot thrown at them. Um, a lot of these actors weren't trained actors or didn't have a lot of experience or were on the uptick. So, um, you know, barring Reese Witherspoon and Matthew Broderick, they were kind of the anchors of this whole thing. So uh, with that said, um, you know, this whole film felt very seamless. It was well put together. I never was taken out of it by any of the performances. Um, but I, I really do feel like this was an era where a lot of these films, you know, kind of came out and shined. And um, I mean, even films like Gummo or the Kevin Smith films or, uh, you know, like we talked about David O. Russell or whatever, um, Todd, Todd Solins, you know, these are all great examples of these, you know, mid to late nineties era character driven movies where, uh, you didn't need a lot of star power. Sometimes you just needed a good script and good editing and all of that. So, yeah. uh, but yeah, I think they, they did great. Yeah. I think that, you know, Reese Witherspoon obviously crushed it. She brought a ton of energy. There's a lot of stuff that she talks about doing, you know, like she was actually mentioning how, Tracy, one of the things she does a lot in the film is has Tracy like quietly grind her teeth, right? So just her mouth gets like very sort of like close and she's like really grinding her teeth to the point that she like had severe that. lockjaw when the filming was done. It took like two <laughs> weeks to recover from because she had been grinding her teeth like so like so tightly the whole thing. And uh, yeah, you know, so and she just brought her all. She campaigned really hard to get the role. Again, Chris Klein, I think, is just note for note perfect throughout the entire thing. You know, you really get the sense that he's a genuinely nice kid and not just acting the part. Uh, for me, I think Matthew Broderick is great in the role, but I think it's more an example of good casting than an exceptional performance. Like, I don't think he tried Fair. very hard. I think he just kind of showed up and acted like Matthew Broderick, like, which, and it works. It totally works, but... I think that Reese Witherspoon, you know, gave it gave it her all. And Matthew Broderick was like, hey, I'm Matthew Broderick. I'm here. Let's go. Uh, but again, still totally yeah, works mean, for the, the movie. Like, it doesn't take away from it. I just don't feel like he really, like, was, like, going to sell out and deliver the all-time great comedic performance or whatever. You almost kind of wonder if he didn't, like, it almost kind of plays out, like, what if Ferris Bueller grew up? Yeah, You know, in the same way that Robin Williams plays Hook uh, or plays Peter Pan and Hook, like what happened to Peter Pan when he leaves Never Never Land and he grows up to be Peter Panning. Sure. He's totally boring lawyer, you know, and all of that. Um, and uh, who avoids his kids instead of playing with his kids and all the things that turn on that. Um, this is kind of Ferris Bueller all grown up, you know, and he never got to leave high school. And now he's teaching there and he's stuck, you know, in, in the Midwest and all these things. It's kind of his personal hell. Yeah. Uh, if he grew up to become Ed Rooney, you know, but uh, <laughs> totally. And then we do get a really great final sequence as well. We see Tracy 
and she's obviously, this is after high school, and she's getting into this senator's car, right? And we get another freeze frame, and Jim is talking in voiceover about how sad he is for her. And then he starts to get, like, a little more and more angry about the situation, you know, before he's ultimately like, who the fuck does she think he is, blah, blah, blah. And he, like, he like throws his drink at the limousine as it's, like, speeding away, and then it stops, and he just, like, freezes, turns around, and bails, right? Uh, so, <laughs> right. really funny thing about the ending. Like, I think it's a note-for-note note perfect ending. I think it's really great. And it took them a really long time to get that ending. So this film floated around for, like, a year and a half in sort of various states of oh, cuts wow. and editing because they had a completely different ending and they were trying to figure out what wasn't working about the film because it wasn't getting the response they wanted and they realized that they had this really somber ending so in the original ending instead of Matthew Broderick going to New York and becoming a docent uh, he goes to some other state and he actually ends up working at a car dealership and so he's a car salesman and one day Tracy Flick shows up and she wants to test drive a vehicle with him. So they go for a test drive and apparently have this very somber heart to heart about kind of like what happened and how things could have been differently. And then it ends with they finish this test drive and Tracy hands Jim her yearbook and asks him to sign it. And he starts like signing and writing her this like heartfelt note. And then the film ends. You can actually see this ending completely unmastered on YouTube right now. If you go to election, oh, if you go weird. to YouTube and you type election film alternate ending, you'll see it. And yeah, and it's just kind of the way that the we were talked about how that, you know, sort of pre-sex scene with the whitehead probably would have been like too over the top and zany for this film. Yeah, yeah. This is the other side of that, right? It was too somber, it was a little too heartfelt, didn't quite hit the same note Dude, that the rest of This is the way hit. to go. Yeah, so this ending and, and it, so it took them like like I think a legit like 16 18 months before they finally stumbled on like writing this ending and went and made it and made it happen. Yeah. I mean, because Again, like reactionary, he's in the moment. It's unplanned. Um, and the second he acts on emotion like he does, it it all goes wrong immediately. It just he's instantly reminded the tragedies that he can get into when he just shoots from the hip like that. Um, to your point earlier, the metaphor of trash. He's using trash, his own <laughs> trash as a weapon. Yeah. And it backfires against him. <laughs> um yeah. Which, which is reflective of the entire movie, right? All, everything, right. he trashed the votes that backfired on him, right? Yes, exactly. And, and this is, you know, he's using it as a projectile and it like, they, they yeah. Uh, but I love the the little inner monologue that he has yeah. in voiceover as well, where he's like coaxing himself up and he's like, oh yeah, I wonder where she's going in that limo. And then like, it slowly gets darker and darker. And then he's like, that fucking bitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he shucks his tree. <laughs> Yeah, it was so very fantastic. Funny. It was very funny, and apparently, when uh, I've uh, apparently I've that, had those thoughts before. About <laughs> apparently, that was really at DC, and when he like started turning and running away, apparently a bunch of Secret Service guys jumped out and started chasing him because they didn't know who this random guy running for the White House was. Because <laughs> it's the actual White House that he's running towards. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah. So, but obviously, that didn't make it into the final cut. But. uh yeah, so, you know, that's the final sequence, and we have the end of Election. So, again, I just, I was very, very pleased with this film. Ended up enjoying it so much more than I thought. Ryan, as always, we like to wrap things up with our little three adjectives feature. So, what do you have? Three adjectives that best describe 
your reaction to election. Starting out, uh, cop in, was it TBS or TNT? Uh, characters only. Because uh, that's <laughs> this movie is a character-driven film. I loved it because of that. Um, you know, fairly simple, but uh, I do... I love this discussion. I love this podcast because, uh, you know, you, you brought a lot of things to light that I had overlooked. And uh, I, I feel like I'm leaving this discussion liking this movie more again. Nice. So this is great. Awesome. Uh, my second one is... Uh, 90s, because this feels <laughs> like a 90s film to me. Um, just in the things it's doing, the chances uh, it's able to take, again, being a character-driven film, like we talked about all the other directors that uh, were kind of doing this at that time as well. You just don't get that anymore. Everything's big studio and got to have an edge or, you know, it's got to be everything everywhere all at once or RRR. You know, if you're going to have an indie film, it's got to be this big, you know, uh, crazy film like that. Uh, but this wasn't. This was very small, and it felt small, and uh, and I miss those days. Yeah, uh, and I miss MTV Productions. My last one, lovably tragic, uh, a <laughs> hyphenated one there. I love a good tragedy. I love a dark comedy. Um, I love an antihero, and uh, this gave us all of the above in spades. How about you, Jason? Right. <clears throat> Nice, man. Nice. Yeah. So for me, I've got uh, my first one is clever. I thought it was a clever little movie. I really liked with regards to the structure. I thought it was a very clever way to satirize the election process itself. Right. Also, you know, let's remember that this was only 20 years ago when things were good enough that you could like, ah, let's make an election movie that satirizes politics and we'll set it in high school. That'll be a fun little romp instead of like <laughs> just the absolute death mayhem and destruction that politics of 2022 is bringing and beyond. Like it's just it's well, so it's easy not- to forget the 90s were like not the constant fear of death over your shoulder at every moment that today is. Let's uh, I'll take that comment a step further. And uh, literally, it was not lost on me. It's in my notes here. I, I didn't really have a chance to shimmy this into our conversation. But uh, literally the next year was the Al Gore, George Bush dangling Chad bullshit that went on. Yeah, we, uh, that was the first year that like all of a sudden elections were questioned. And we yeah. were like, whoa, wait, what? Mm-hmm. I thought we just voted and we had a winner. What the hell is all this? So, uh, yeah, to your point, um, like literally the next year or months after this movie came out is when uh we had our first election uh, uh, debacle. I know, right? Like, introduced to our country. So. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. it's so weird to think about that at the time that they wrote election, the idea of people like stealing votes and manipulating elections, like these were the realms of fantasy, right? Now it's like a spot on the nose satire that's like way more prescient right. and relevant than even when they made it 20 years ago. It's right. insanity. No, we've all lost total faith in our democracy yeah. for the most part. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, the second one I have is subtle. Now, it does not to say that the movie is always subtle, right? Some of the, like I said, you know, the face that Chris Klein gives when he's getting the blowjob. Like, there are some over-the-top things about it. But, like, all like just from the respect of all the things we looked at, like, all of the different devices that Alexander Payne used that we he didn't even call attention to, that we didn't even know were there, right? We both talked about how right. before we rewatched <laughs> this film, we kind of had this idea that it was a little bit, like, maybe visually stagnant or uninteresting. Like, it was mostly just, like, going to come through the performances. And then you start looking at all these special effects and sets. Like, we didn't even mention, you know, how he's using, like, 16 millimeter on the swings when the girls are looking at each other, like... Um, you know, there's a lot of really interesting techniques, but they're so subtly used, they don't call attention to themselves. And that's what I really, really appreciate this film 
And then kind of in keeping with that, it's a spirited movie. Like this dude brought his A game. Like he was not going to suffer the sophomore slump. Like he he was he took a lot of time finding the story that he wanted to tell for his follow-up effort. And when he found it, like he went all in, right? And some of the metaphors worked and some of them didn't. But again, with these recurring visual motifs, right? The trash attaching circles to Jim, attaching angles and lines to Tracy, using four different voiceovers in the same film. And at no point does that interrupt the process for the audience. Like the, this guy was like all about making this movie and it really, really shows. So with all of that said, Ryan, let's get a formal grade rating from you on Alexander Payne's election. Uh, I'm giving this one a B plus. Very good. Very good for my star rating. And again, if this is your first time here, you'll notice that Ryan does grade ratings. I do star ratings. It's just something that happened along the way and we're not going to change it for you or anybody. So just deal with it. (laughs) (laughs) This is how I get fans. Now I just openly antagonize them and challenge you guys to fights. Come on, listen to me. Listen to me. I dare you. Let's go. Let's go. Listen to my podcast, bro. Uh, formal star rating for Alexander Payne's election. I got to give this one, dude, this I this was one of the hardest star ratings that I have given. Like, I, I bandied about so much, and I had to sort of, like, go up and back and forth. I actually settled on four and three quarters out of five stars. Oh, wow. Like, in terms of, like, in terms of, in terms of its construction, this is... This is pretty much a flawlessly constructed film. That's not to say it's your perfect film that you're going to love in terms of the aesthetics and the story and all of that, but like there's no mistakes in this film at all. Every single second on screen is a second that deserves to be there. I'll and agree with that. Is, you know, advances the story, tells us something about character, makes us laugh, visually interesting. There is a reason for every second of this film to exist, but I can't personally say that like oh, this is a film that reflects me on celluloid, right? Like, if you want to know what makes Jason tick, watch Election, right? Like, I'm not going to say that. So because of that, because I can't, I don't maybe, like, as It's a perfect film, but it's not your favorite film. Correct, yeah. So, but again, like, still a very, very, very good film, wonderful film, certainly belongs in that conversation of best films of one of the, one of the best films of one of the best years of films, which is in and of itself high praise. So four and three quarters out of five stars for Alexander Payne's election. I can't wait to go back and check out more of this dude's work. I, uh, I didn't give him enough attention the first time around. Dope, dude. Glad it made Absolutely. the list. And I'm certainly glad it got picked. Absolutely. 100%. There's uh, dude, again, you know, uh, we, we have had four, well, we've had three absolute bangers and then one solid film that I'm glad we watched in following. But, you know, RoboCop, Amadeus, and now Election, mwah, chef's kiss, indeed. Love it, love Let's it, yeah. Let's keep this good vibes going, shall we? Now, before we go ahead and pick our next film, do want to remind you guys, the website, it's looking nice and robust these days. You may have noticed we've got ourselves a fancy new little logo. We are stepping it on up here, moving on up to the east side, as Mr. Jefferson would like to say, and... You can go and you can literally listen to every single thing that we put out on the website, right? So we're kind of doing these things now where we're doing a full-length episode one week. We've got a a five-minute mini-review the next week. And if it's not going to be a five-minute mini-review, it's going to be like a feature of some sort. 
I don't think we've done any yet, but that's kind of something we're tooling around. And then you're still going to have the sketches released on their own, right? So all of this you can listen to right there on the website. We've got a player with the last four or five episodes right there. And then it also has the link to the dedicated web player. And then, of course, it's also got all of our different little uh, contacts and social medias. And it's got our master list on there. The master list that we choose all of our films from. So now before we choose the film as well, I know I'm drawing this out a little bit, right? But it's because we got one other thing. We, we, and, and as you know, it's the voicemail, the Esoterica Cinema Hotline. And we're really, really encouraging you guys. You, you know, you've heard us play some clips here um, on all these different episodes. Want to continue to have you guys call in. We love interacting with you. We love hearing your beautiful, beautiful voices that are so much better than my nasally drone. Again, nasal heat, Chatsworth, porno. Go check me out back in the day. Going to give you an actual question, sort of like a question of the episode or a question of the day here, to go ahead and call the vo- voicemail with. So the number for the Esoteric Central Hotline, 818-483-6285. Question for you. Where does Alexander Payne rank on the mid to late 90s auteur list? So, Ryan, this is to your point earlier, right? You've got Wes Anderson. You've got David Fincher. You've got Paul Thomas Anderson. You've got Tarantino. You've got David O. Russell. All these sort of like mid to late 90s auteurs. And Alexander Payne can sometimes be left off of that list a little bit, but then other people will include him. So uh, for all of our listeners, you listening, I want to know, what do you think of Alexander Payne, responsible for Citizen Ruth, About Schmidt, Nebraska, and Election, among others, Give us a call, Esoteric Cinema Hotline, 818-483-6285. We'll play your response in a future episode. And if you don't want to call, we'll still take your emails and your socials. So you can always catch us, esotericacinema at gmail.com. Give us that sweet, sweet email love. You can also tell us about muffins, crepes, or any pastry that you might be enjoying. We love to hear about that as well. And you can also find us on the Twitter and the Instagram at esotericacinema. Now, with that out of the way, it is time to find out what we are going to be spending our next week looking at, discussing, considering, all that fun stuff. And so, of course, as we do every single time we do this, we are going to go to our random.org true random number generator. Which, and by the way, too, if you're like listening to this at work or something and you're just looking to kill some time, go ahead and go to esotericacinema.com right now. Take a look at this list. You can sort of play along with us while we do this little uh, game where we play. You know, you can look at all these awesome movies, right? I'm looking at Chud, the genre classic Chud, cannibalistic humanoid underground dweller, right? That's on here. I'm looking at an all time classic in Dr. Strangelove from Stanley Kubrick, right? We have got. Hal Ashby's Shampoo on here. We've got Guy Ritchie's Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. All these wonderful, wonderful films from across the cinematic multiverse. We're going to go 1 through 200 and see what we pull here and what the next film we're going to look at is. So we go here, and we are going to look at film 136. That's right. The film is number 136. Okay, Ryan, I am going to need you to pull up a description on this film that I believe is from, like, maybe the mid-50s called Sweet Smell of Success. Sweet Smell of Success. That's right, Jason, from 1957, starring a good old Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis. Yeah. 
this will be a cool little palate cleanser. We haven't gotten to a uh, like an old school classic film yet this season, so I'm excited about this. Google has this listed as New York City newspaper writer J.J. Hunsecker, played by Burt Lancaster. That's such a fucking classic name. That's like right out of the Hunsucker proxy. J.J. Oh, it's Hunsucker. Such a, it's such a masculine name. You just got to love it. New York City newspaper writer J.J. Hunsecker, played by Burt Lancaster, holds considerable sway over public opinion with his Broadway column. But one thing that he can't control is his younger sister, Susan, who is in a relationship with aspiring jazz guitarist Steve Dallas, played by Marty Milner. Hunsecker strongly disapproves of the romance and recruits publicist Sidney Falco, played by Tony Curtis, to find a way to split the couple no matter how ruthless the method. Damn, that sounds brutal, dude. And also, like, I mean, dude, Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis. I see why uh, we put this movie on this list now. Yeah, right. I mean, it's based on a novelette from Cosmopolitan Magazine in 1950 called Tell Me About It Tomorrow. (laughs) Directed by Alexander McKedrick. I don't even know who that is. How about that? (laughs) I don't either. But you know what's funny, Ryan, is this is actually one of those films that you see on a lot of, like, you know, hundred best films you've got to see before you die that you don't know okay. about or stuff like that. Awesome. You know, I did just look up Alexander McKendrick and uh, dude directed the original The Lady Killers that the Coen Brothers oh, remade. Wow, so that's cool. Once again, the movie is Sweet Smell of Success with Tony Curtis and Burt Lancaster. It does seem to be available on Prime Video as well as elsewhere. So go ahead and check that out, and then we will see you for the next episode of Esoterica Cinema. Thanks for joining us.